Uh, let me introduce myself for those of you who I have yet to meet yet. My name is Ryan. I have the blessing of serving this incredible family as a lead pastor. And today I get to bring the word as we enter into our second week uh, in the book of Malachi. Now, for those of you uh, who maybe weren't with us last week or even for those of you who were, let me just refresh your memory a little bit about this book that I think honestly most of us aren't really that familiar with. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Right, so what that means is that these words we're looking at today and over the next several weeks, they represent the final words that God has for his people before they enter into this period of over 400 years of silence. Right, that's what that one page in your Bible represents, the page between the Old and the New Testament, between uh, Malachi and the Gospel of Matthew. 400 years where the people of God heard nothing from God. You probably want to ask yourself, like, why? Why didn't they hear from him? Well, actually, if you just look to the first chapter in the book of Malachi, you'll get a glimpse as to why that is, right? Because God's people had become completely disengaged, right? They were showing up to the temple, but really only when they had to, bringing really only what was left, and they were leaving their hearts at home. God could see, really, that their desires weren't for him, and so in his infinite grace, what he did is he gave them the desires of their heart, which was a life separated from him, right? He went silent on them, but not before he delivers one final message, and that's the message we find in the book of Malachi. Now, if you were here last week, you know that, that the book of Malachi is going to have some really hard words for the people then and the people now to hear. But God, he does something pretty awesome. He roots this message in love. Right, he starts off by reminding and reassuring his people of his unending love for them, which is a good thing for them to remember. And it's a good thing for you to keep in mind because God is about to bring down the hammer starting this week. Like he, honestly, you've got to believe me here, he's not going to hold back at all. And with good reason. Right, God was being disrespected. His name was being dishonored. He was simply just being disregarded in these people's lives. And it wasn't because they had totally abandoned him. It was actually much worse than that, right? Because they actually stayed. They just took their heart out of it. And there is nothing more insulting to God than to simply go through the, the motions of religion and tradition without having that true heart of worship, right? When you give this perception uh, of this desire to love and to, to honor God, but you don't have the submitted heart that actually longs to do it. That's why God eventually is just going to tell his people, hey, this is what you're bringing to me. Go ahead and stay home. Right? Go ahead and shut those doors. Keep them locked. Because that's not worship. Right? The level of, of dishonor and, and disrespect for the Lord, man, it was out of control. And nowhere was this more clear or more evident than in the gifts, the offerings that the people were bringing before the Lord. See, this is the funny thing about gifts. Gifts communicate what's truly in our heart. Right? Not just the ones we bring before the Lord, but even the ones we give to each other. That's why there's that saying, right? It's the, it's the thought that counts when you give a gift. Right? Gifts have a way of, of exposing and expressing our devotion in ways that few other things really honestly can. And I want to show you what I mean. I brought a few examples. You've probably been wondering what these random things are up here. But I want to show you a couple of examples. The first is what I call a guilt gift. Okay, this is the kind of gift you give because you feel guilty that somebody gave you something. Okay, so let me paint a picture for you. It's like almost Christmas time. You invite somebody over. They show up to your house, and they bring a gift. And you realize, 
oh, I'm on their Christmas gift list and they're not on mine. Anybody ever been in this situation? So I go into my wife's closet and I find a gift bag and I'm like, what can I throw in here to pass as a gift? That's not true. My wife is so intentional. She always has a gift for people. She work, works on them in June and has them well in advance. But if I didn't have her, that's what would happen. And what these guilt gifts do is they communicate really just a lack of, of intentionality. Right? They're kind of thoughtless. They're just given as a reaction to a gift that's given to you. The second kind of gift is what I call an on-the-way gift. You guys know what this looks like, right? Like, you know you need to get somebody a gift. You just kind of forget about doing it, right? Other things are more important. And so you realize as you're getting ready to go to this birthday party or something, oh, shoot, I need to get them a gift. And so you stop at Walmart or H-E-B on the way, and you give them a gift. If you've ever received a gift in a bag like this, you've got an on-the-way gift, okay? <laughs> but what that communicates to us, right? If somebody gave you a gift like this, are you feeling like you're a priority in their life? No, of course not. So there's the guilt gift, there's the on-the-way gift. The third kind of gift is what I call a look-at-me gift, right? It's shiny, it looks expensive, it might even be expensive, but you know this kind of gift because you can tell that there's not a whole lot of substance behind it, right? The only thought that probably went into a gift like this is how the gift giver would be perceived. Each of these gifts, what they do is they communicate a clear message, thoughtlessness, a lack of priorities, a desire for, for self-glorification. And those may not seem like a big deal to you when it comes to like your great Aunt Sally's birthday, but you better believe it's a big deal when it comes to our worship of the Lord. Because right? the type of gifts that God deserves come out of a place of deep devotion and the desire to, to express our love for Him. Right? They are heartfelt, they are genuine, and they are pure. I brought an example this morning of, of what this looks like. So I'll call this last one a child's gift. And here's why. About a week ago, I came home and my sweet little daughter came as she always does. She greeted me at the door and it had been a long, hard day. And so, man, I just love those, those hugs from my sweet girl, Avery, when I get home. And she was overly excited this day. And I didn't know why. But she told me, she said, Daddy, you got to go sit on the couch and go close your eyes. And I was like, Okay, if you guys know me, you know I can't say no to anything Avery asks. And so I go and I sit on the couch and I close my eyes and I hear her little feet scamper up our stairs and then they scamper back down and she tells me to, to open my eyes. And I open my eyes and I see my, my sweet girl and her big, beautiful brown eyes and she's holding this and she says, look what I made for you, daddy. Do you love it? I mean, come on. My heart about leapt out of my chest. Right in that one moment, I could see, I could feel my daughter's love for me. And it wasn't because of this beautiful painting that she painted me. It's because I could feel her heart was in it. I knew in that moment she is devoted to me as her father. And I couldn't help but wonder, is this what my worship looks like to the Lord? Is this the type of devotion that I'm bringing to him? Is this what our worship looks like when we gather together to worship our Father? Do the gifts, the offering, the sacrifice, the serving, the singing, do they communicate a sincere love for our Father? Do they tell him that he is the number one priority in our lives? Because I'm going to tell you, he's not interested in anything else. 
He's not interested in worship out of obligation. He's not interested in, in sacrifices of anything other than our best because we all know he deserves our everything. So I want to invite you this morning. Open up your hearts. Right, examine those gifts, those offerings, that worship you've been bringing before the Lord and allow him to reveal the desires within your heart. I'm going to tell you one thing. This, this message is not going to be an easy one to hear. But I can promise you that if you stick with me, there is so much joy. There is so much hope to be found in it. So would you just humble yourselves to receive this word from God this morning? Let's take a moment just to, to center our hearts. Would you just bow your heads with me as we come before the Lord? Father, we are humbled this morning, Lord. Humble just to be in your presence, to sit in the stillness to receive your word. I ask, Lord, that you would use this time. Lord, teach us through your word. Convict us by the power of your Holy Spirit and draw us closer to you. Lord, I pray that as we, we come to know you more deeply today, that you would receive the honor and the praise and the glory that you so rightly deserve. We pray these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. We were going to dive straight into the word this morning. So if you have your Bibles or Bible apps, you can get those out. Turn with me to Malachi chapter one. Like I said, it's the last book of the Old Testament. So if you're seeing names like Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, just turn back a little bit. It's only like probably two or three pages in your Bible there. Malachi chapter one. We're going to begin with verse six and go all the way to verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. It says this. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you and show, or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle the fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations." Now, I warned you, God <laughs> brings down the hammer, right? He, he just continues over and over again, speaking against the lack of devotion that he sees from his people. 
right? And just like the illustrations we talked about earlier, right? This is so clear in the gifts they are bringing before the Lord. There is no honor in them, right? Polluted food, blemished, lame, blind animals being brought to him as a sacrifice. This is such a far cry from the type of sacrifice that God demands back in Leviticus. Such a far cry from the type of, of sacrifice that he desires. And it's certainly a far cry from the type of sacrifice that he deserves. Which is what leads him to saying, hey, if this is what you're going to bring, don't even bother bringing it. Just leave it at home. Shut the door. Lock it behind you. Now we're going to get to uh, what the proper response to God should look like and, and how that applies to us today. But I want you to understand some of the, the context in this because it's so important. It's so different than our, our current modern day context. So I want you to stick with me with two quick things here. The first is that this message is being actually delivered to the priests. You might have caught that there in verse 6 where God addresses the priests. So these words, they apply to all of God's people, but God is delivering it first and foremost to these leaders. Why? Because they've been given responsibility for leading the people to God, and instead, they were leading them away from God. They were leading them astray. And they were the ones that were setting the tone. They were setting the example. And what were they doing? They were, they were honoring God with their, their lips while they were dishonoring him with their lives. We hear Jesus himself speak out against this using the words of another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, right? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So this is the tone that they were setting. So this message is for the priest, but before you go and check out and say, oh, this one's for, for Pastor Ryan, Pastor Gary, Pastor John, Pastor Daniel, wrong. <laughs> because actually we see in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we're called the royal what? Priesthood. We are all priests, which means this responsibility lies with each of us. That we are all to honor God, not just with our lips, but with our hearts. I think that's the thing we so often neglect about worship. Pastor Josiah just talked about it a moment ago, right? It deals with our hearts, our praises, our, our sacrifices, our giving, our serving. Those things are just outward expression of what's going on in here. And unfortunately, the outward expression that we see here from the people of God, well, it revealed a whole lot about what's going on in their heart. At least that second quick piece of context I want us to understand this morning. That the offering and sacrifices, this was the, actually the main method through which the people of God connected to God. The offerings and sacrifices were the main method with which they connected to God. This is a harder one for us to understand today. Right? We're, we're here on the other side of Christ's resurrection. We have unhindered access to God through the Holy Spirit. But in those days, they could only do this through the offering of sacrifices. This was their way to God. And so what these sacrifices represented is they represented a substitute, right? There was a price that needed to be paid for their, their sin and their, their selfishness. And so these sacrifices, they made a way for them to, to commune with God, right? Their sins needed to be atoned. Their debt needed to be paid. And so God made a way for that to happen. If you want some light reading for your summer by the pool, look at Leviticus, I think it's chapter 6 through 8, somewhere around there. Take it by the pool. It's good reading for you. But God lays out what he deems to be an appropriate substitute. Clearly, the people aren't following it. Why? It was a burden, right? It was costly to them. So what did they do? The people of God responded by cutting corners. There's a whole other sermon in there about the way that we still do this today. I'm just going to leave you to, to think about that one on your own. 
But what the people did is they said, well, why would I bring my, my, my first and my, my best animal? They're just going to burn it on the altar. Why don't I just bring this one that I don't really need anymore? And so they brought the, 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 the blind, the, the lame, the, the blemished. And they didn't even do it with a good heart, honestly. They, they came with bitterness in their heart. Because they didn't even think God was worthy of their time. Right? It's a two, three-day journey maybe for some of them. I got to bring my best. I got to spend a week away from my family just to go and do this. A week away from making money. You can start to see their gifts, where their priorities, where their thoughtfulness, where their intentionality lie. They couldn't see it, right? But they had slowly started drifting down this gradual road towards sin. And the thing is, the priests actually were with, in with them on it, right? This actually became an acceptable thing. If you think about some of like our, our traffic laws, right? I'm from California where they have this thing called the California roll where everybody just kind of slows down at a stop sign. Well, now it's sort of generally acceptable. Even the police will sometimes look the other way when it happens. Well, it's the same thing with the priests here. They're like, oh, that one's got a little blemish on it. Ah, that's okay. But the reality is that's not okay. The priests and the people were both compromising. And so that's where when they ask this question, they say, how have we despised your name? Well, I don't think it's sarcastic like the question we heard last week. I think there's a genuine ignorance because they had cut corners for so long that it just became normal to them. Ah, is it really important for us to go to church uh, maybe we'll go once a month. Maybe we'll just go on, on Christmas and Easter. And there's a lot of pastors that are okay with it. Not here. <laughs> we call people to live fully engaged lives. Not disengaged lives. Not check in a couple of times a year lives. Fully engaged lives with Jesus, with each other, and with our world. Because we know what happens otherwise. We will slowly drift away from God. And that's exactly what happens here. So that's what happened, but what does that show us, right? What does that reveal to us? Well, that's a, a great question to ask anytime you're reading scripture. Like if you're just reading scripture and being like, okay, I read it for the day and you're closing up shop, man, you are leaving behind so much. Let me encourage you, if whatever book you're in, whether you're in Malachi or something else, ask questions of the text. You can just, you can just ask this one, what does this reveal to me? God, what do you want me to know from this? And what we'll typically find is that it'll answer a few things for us. It'll tell us something that's true about people. The text will tell us something that's true about God. And then it'll tell us something that's true about us. Every single time. It doesn't matter the verse. It'll tell you those three things. So I want to do that here with this passage, starting with what this tells us about people. Well, it's pretty clear to see when we look at uh, the, the people of God in this time of Malachi, that they had a pretty low view of God, which means they had a pretty high view of themselves, right? They did not take their sin seriously. So that's why they were just content to sort of checking the box, right? They believed their heritage, this, this title they had as children of God, that that alone was enough to save them. So they just went through the motions, right? Living these disengaged lives, and they said, okay, God's over here, but I'm going to go pursue all of these things over here. And the sad thing is that sense of entitlement that they felt was the exact thing that was blinding them from the depths of their depravity. They had lost sight of just how evil they were and how good God is. Let me tell you what happens because they lose sight of that. This opportunity that they had to repent and to, to worship and to glorify God, it became a burden rather than a blessing. 
Right, this opportunity to come to the temple to connect with God, to repent and to worship and to glorify him became a burden rather than a blessing. I know none of us can relate to that when our week's a little hard and we get to Sunday morning, right? Because if our heart's not in it, it feels more like a burden than a blessing. Right? This is exactly what can happen to us. This is why we preach the full gospel here at Awaken. Because we need to be told and we need to be reminded regularly of the depths of our depravity. Of what God has saved us out of. It's so easy to gloss over the verses, but there are so many in the Bible that point us to the depths of our depravity. I'm going to give you just a few examples. The Bible tells us that we are like snake venom. How is that for encouraging? Romans 3.13 tells us that we're covered with sores and infected wounds, that we are like dirty rags, maggots, and worms. Told you this was going to be an encouraging message this morning. But listen, those words aren't intended to beat you down. They're actually intended to point you up. Right? They're intended to reveal to you the full glory of your salvation by reminding you of what you've been saved from and more importantly, who you've been saved to. Listen, the simple truth is this, unless and until you come to a, a full understanding of the depths of your depravity, worship and sacrifice will always be just an obligation to you. They will always be just a, a box to check, a, a tradition to pass on, or worse yet, this inconvenient interruption to your plans. But if you're willing to face the truth, to acknowledge the depths of your depravity, that on your own you are powerless to save yourself, then worship and sacrifice, then it starts to become this overflow of a devotion to the one who has saved you. It's where our heart has to be, focused on the Father, and that leads to what this reveals to us about God. When we understand the depths of our depravity, we see God for who he is. He is our deliverer. Because not only did he make a way for us to be reconciled to him through a sacrifice, he actually became that sacrifice himself. This was the plan that was in place all along. God knew he wouldn't be perfect. And he knew that there was only one way for the debt of our sin to be paid. That was for a perfect sacrifice to be offered in our place. So in his infinite grace, before we can even sin against him, God ushers in this plan. Right? It's a plan that starts all the way back in the Old Testament with this system of sacrifices where unblemished lambs would take our place until the unblemished lamb would come and take our place as our once and for all sacrifice. And so now because he who knew no sin became sin for us, we can be forever connected with our God. We can be rescued from sin and death. And have eternal life with God in his presence. That is the good news of the gospel. Do you believe it this morning? I know we hear this often. But family, I just got to know. Do you truly understand what you've been saved from? Do you take time to reflect on the things you've been saved from? Do you take the time to get to know the, who you've been saved to? Because one of my greatest fears is that awakened church would be filled with people who know these truths, but they don't actually live by them. Again, this is why we call you to live fully engaged lives. Because everything else in the world is going to offer you a chance to disengage. Not us. 
There are even other churches out there that might be okay with you just checking the box, but not here. One of our core values is that we call each other to more. And if you go through our fully engaged class, you know we talk about this thing called accountability. We want to be pastors who actually notice when you're not here, and we call you to ask why, not for guilt or shame, but because we know that God has so much in store for you here. Call you to live fully engaged lives. We want you to wake up. Right? We, we went through this whole rebranding process and we considered, do we change this name? No, this is the name that God gave us as a church. And so we kept it because we want you to wake up to the reality of who Jesus is. What his mission here in Round Rock and Austin and throughout the world is for each and every one of you. And we want you to live by that truth. The truth that, that Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.24. I love this verse. He says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Family, by his wounds, you have been healed. Do you know what you've been saved from? Do you know who you've been saved to? Because if you do, then that should point you to something very important about yourself, and that's this. Your devotion to God is a direct result of your delight in God. If you haven't taken any notes this morning, just go ahead, just jot that one down. Meditate on that this week. Your devotion to God is a direct result of your delight in God. Right? This is why we need to be constantly reminded of what we've been saved from. Because it highlights the value of the freedom that we've been given. It highlights the riches of God's grace for us. And what happens is... The only natural response we have when we understand the depths of our depravity and the grace of our deliverer is we can find delight in him. Right? We relish in the joy found in the one who found us. Find joy in our Savior, the one who found us and brought us home. See, family, the good news of the gospel is not just that we have been saved from hell. That is good news. But that's not the only thing, right? The good news of the gospel is that through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we've been reconciled to our Father. Right? We've been put back in right relationship with Him. Right? Not just deemed to be acceptable, but worthy to be called sons and daughters. This is why our response, man, it should look like this. A little earlier, I was looking down at my daughter and I see her hands <laughs> raised. Our kids back in that children's ministry, man, let me tell you, those are pure hearts. We have so much we can learn from the way they worship the Lord. So I'm just going to leave this right here for some of you, because I don't know about you, but it's been convicting me all week. This is what our response should look like. Innocent, pure-hearted joy that, that comes out of the overflow of a deep devotion to God. Paul captures this really perfectly in Romans chapter 12 when he says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Family, true and proper worship isn't just giving God the best of what's left. It's giving him your everything. Surrendering all of it, 
your whole life so that he can transform your heart and renew your mind and point you towards your purpose. Leads me to my last thought as I invite the band back up this morning. You know, I think one of the main reasons God gets so frustrated here, outside of the fact that his name was despised and uh, his altar polluted, I think it's the fact that his people weren't living according to their purpose. His children didn't understand that, that they were created to bring him glory. And like a good father, it brought him so much pain to see his children not doing what they were created to do. Some of you parents here can maybe relate to what that might feel like. Children of God had lost sight of uh, uh, the fact that God had delivered them and what he had delivered them from. And so their desires, their delights were found anywhere other than in God. Family, we run the same risk when we forget about the depths of our depravity and the grace of our deliverer. We start to find our joy, our delight, our desires in other things. And it shows in the gifts that we bring before the Lord. If you remember back to the beginning of the message, I asked you, just open up your hearts to examine the gifts, the worship you're bringing before the Lord. I want to encourage you again, in light of what we've just heard, to do that now. We've left a little bit of extra space here to intentionally press in to this posture of worship. There are some of you here this morning who I believe need to, maybe for the first time, acknowledge who Jesus Christ is in your life, to receive his grace and his mercy. That begins by confessing of your sins, repenting from them, turning from them, and receiving that mercy we've been singing about. And if that's you, I want to encourage you. Some of our pastors, our prayer team is going to be in the back. We would love to pray over you. Others of you, maybe most of you, and you just need to open up your heart before God this morning. You need to open up your heart before God this morning to, to repent of the ways you've been cutting corners. The ways in which your heart is sought to be disengaged. God, it's more comfortable if I just keep you at arm's length. If that's you, can I just encourage you to get back to the heart of worship this morning? Allow God to change the desires of your heart. He will. Psalm 37, 4 tells us, delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Well, he'll give you the desires of your heart because he will change the desires of your heart if you delight in him. Family, I promise you there was joy and there was hope in this. But it starts with a surrendered heart. It starts with a heart that delights in the Lord that recognizes who he is, what he has done for you. So listen, I'm not going to tell you what that posture looks like. But let's let our worship be an outward expression of what's going on in here. We'll be in the back if you need prayer. Find somebody near you. Find a life group leader. Let's be the church together. Would you pray with me? Father, it is overwhelming the love you have shown for us. I pray, Lord, over my brothers and sisters, Lord, wherever they might find themselves today, that you would meet them. 
Lord, that you would bring them an inexpressible joy. And Lord, that out of an overflow of their love, out of an overflow of their devotion to you, that they would just give that right back to you, Lord. Because you alone are worthy. We love you, Lord. Praise in Jesus' name.